From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Minneapolis, Minnesota, he is the author of the Marketeer-in-Chief Project. Please welcome Jason Voyovich. Woo, woo. I love it. I love it. You know, I, I feel it, dude. Uh, when I hear it, and if you're listening to this, you might not be able to see it, but Raj, in the background of your image right now is a custom-made WWE wrestling belt, and it just makes me feel like I should be running down, you know, <laughs> running down to the squared circle to get into the ring and have some fun. So I'm a child of the 80s. Uh, so wrestling was a part of my life back then, especially coming from Minneapolis. So what a what a blast! Great to be here. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Maybe maybe you're giving me an idea that in future episodes I'll have the guest pick a theme song, uh, and then that, and I'll like say it over that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. As I mentioned, he is Jason Voyovich, the author of the Marketer in Chief Project. He's also a fractional CMO to growing companies and someone who I recently just met, but I thought he has one of the smartest marketing minds I've ever come across. And it was through the marketerinchief.com project. I remember I'd emailed you, Jason, and I said, I have no idea how I got added to your newsletter, but I'm happy that I did because I've been really enjoying these articles. And what Jason's been doing is documenting every president in U.S. history through the lens of what if we looked at them as a CMO as opposed to as a president, and we looked at their presidency or the things that have happened in their tenure through the lens of marketing above all else. And why I think that's going to be really valuable for you, the listening audience, is because if we look at what world leaders have done in a marketing lens, it can help you as a company leader, as an executive at your company, think about how you can market better or market differently. Now, today's specific topic is you know, maybe considered controversial, but I wanted to get it out there, especially in advance of our upcoming presidential election to give you an idea. I want you to everyone think a little bit more clearly about the election itself, but then also what is the marketing that goes into an election. And our topic today is how to swing an election with $46,000, which President Donald Trump did in the 2016 election. So again, I mentioned, might be a little bit controversial, but Jason is going to call it as he sees it through the marketing angle. And Jason, with that being our topic today, first off, welcome again to the show. The first thing I want to ask here, usually I ask, why is it on your mind? But I think we know why it's on your mind. What I'd rather ask is, 
Can you just give a broad perspective? When, when you say swing an election, what do you mean by that? I think when most people think about an election, they think about you know broad opinion polls. They think about who's ahead in the horse race. But I think in the last few years, especially up to the 2016 election, people started to get a sense for like the website 538 that started to get at what candidate was ahead in what swing states and what key things. And a unique feature of the U.S. presidential election system that's unique uh, most other countries is the electoral college system. So from a people think about that, they think about the swing states, the battleground states, right? From a marketer's perspective, that's just segmentation. That's just where I should target my efforts, my money, and what I'm going to do. So $46,000 doesn't seem like a lot of money, and it's not. But here's the thing. When the races are so close in certain areas, not just in certain states, but in certain zip codes, in certain with individual people, just a little bit of a nudge one way or another absolutely can swing an election. So we need to think differently. We need to think from a marketer's lens on how digital marketing specifically works so that we can understand how the candidates are thinking about this. And more than that, how they're taking action to move votes from one place to another. There's nothing, uh, key thing, there's nothing illegal about this. You know, there's nothing that says that people can't advocate for themselves. You know, when we think about the candidates and the advertisements we see on television or the banner ads we see on websites, that's scratching a tiny bit of the surface and not really what the key, uh, it's not really the key aspect of how an election is handled these days. We're going to talk a whole lot more about this, the inner mechanics of how President Trump did this in 2016, leveraging uh, digital platforms like Facebook. Before we go into all of that, let's learn a little bit more about you, Jason. Um, you've got a pretty interesting background. Um, you've talked a lot about this idea, at least in my conversations with you, about the idea of like a portfolio career. Um, I'm actually curious to know, what is one memory of play you have of your childhood, meaning like either playing outside, playing with a friend, playing video games, things like that. What's a memory of play you have in your childhood? Wow, that's a really good question. Uh, like most kids in the 80s, I remember uh, mowing lawns. You know, my, this is back in the era where you could, you know, you sent your kid out at eight in the morning in the summer and they didn't come back until six o'clock or they came back when it got dark or when they were hungry. Uh, so I, I was that kid. And I remember mowing lawns, picking up sticks, whatever anyone, I could get anyone to hire me to do for a dollar or $2 because I wanted Nintendo Entertainment System, the 8-bit ah. Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, and I remember when I earned enough money finally, to go to the store and to buy this. I bought it from Kmart, of all places. I don't know if there are Kmarts anymore. I think there's I a, there, there are still some that exist. They haven't gone completely out yet. <laughs> yeah, so I went to Kmart, and I remember sitting down with that thing and a little old TV that I had to kind of wire into the back. Mm -hmm. You know, you had to unscrew the thing. The yeah, back. it was like you prong that went around the screw right. on the back of the TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My first introduction to electronics was making sure that my Nintendo could work. But I remember I had been outside for months. It was maybe two and a half months it took me to earn this money to get there. 
And I don't think I came out of my room until I had to go back to school uh, in the fall. <laughs> so I love that thing. I was totally transfixed with it. And it was something where your buddies could come over and they could play with you because I was one of the only kids who had one. Yeah. So I, I was a popular kid for once in my childhood. I was a popular kid. Uh, but that's the clearest memory I have of something that was really like, wow, I just, that thing is so fantastic. And to, you know, see my kids, uh, my kids are older now, but to see them get the new Nintendo things and see some of those same characters, yeah. you know, 30 years later is pretty wild. I think. That's why I keep buying the Nintendo. I mean, I just keep wanting to play like the new versions of the Mario games every time they come out. <laughs> and it's funny you mentioned Kmart because I remember getting, going with my brother and my dad, we went to Kmart to get Super Nintendo. And the, um, so the, that was a time period when you bought the system, it actually came with two controllers and a game, sometimes yeah. two games. <laughs> and I remember we really wanted the, what, the package, the, the system that came with Donkey Kong Country. Yes. Okay. And there was that, you know, behind the counter, there was that you could buy. Or there was the package that came with a fighting game called Killer Instinct, which was like a mm. worse version of Mortal Kombat. Yeah. And this is really funny. I think it's very telling of my dad, at least at the time. You have two kids who are like respectively like five and eight years old. <laughs> And we're saying we want the Donkey Kong package, but it costs more because right. Donkey Kong's a more coveted game. So he decides, let me get my five and eight-year-old, the one with the gory violence game, because it costs like 30 bucks less than the other one. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's kind of a feature. My dad was like that too. If, if something was $5 cheaper, you were getting it, even yeah. if it was markedly worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, with your, and so with the Nintendo Entertainment System, the original, I remember, you know, with that prong, you had to fix it into the screw in the back of the TV, which is just so strange now. And then you had to figure out would it be on channel three or channel four. I actually remember the original TV we were plugging into at my house in the basement was the TV didn't even have a remote. It was just like a, a loud clicking dial that had, I think, 12 possible channels on it. Kids, look this up somewhere. You're going to, you're Those not going to be talking about <laughs> this, this is a real thing. There were there were two dials, UHF and VHF. Yes. And you had to like click this thing. You had to actually go physically up to the TV <laughs> yeah. and click a manual switch. Wild. And there were a lot of fuzz channels uh, in the meantime. Now, given that that was your big memory and you talked about Nintendo, I have to ask, were you a Mario 1, Mario 2, or Mario 3 uh, player? That's great. I played all three, as you could probably guess. Yeah, but what was your favorite? But Mario 3 was my favorite. Mm. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. We'll get along. <laughs> yeah, because you could you could have that little raccoon suit, and you could kind of yep. fly around a little bit. <laughs> uh, I never quite understood that. It took me years later to watch one of those shows on Netflix that talked about the history of Mario 1, 2, and 3. But mm. apparently Mario 2 was kind of a... Uh, it was a totally different game. It was a yeah. totally different idea. And it, it totally caught me off guard when I first played it. I had no idea what was going on. It was, I mean, I played it, but I never enjoyed it quite as much as one or three. Like, I've got that little uh, uh, NES thing that you bought a number of uh, Christmases ago. They had yeah. a little uh, like retro. launch pack, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I have that one in the, in the Super NES. And... 
I can tell you that I, I have not played Mario 2 at all. But, you know, my wife and I now play, uh, you know, we'll play, we'll, we'll do the trade-off on Mario 3. It's kind of a, she's a, you know, she's a girl of the 80s as well. So she has a real similar story. I think that's probably why we got married. <laughs> and she had to earn her money uh, working at her parents' restaurant to get her Super Nintendo, or her original 8-bit Nintendo, just pretty much in the same way I did. So... <laughs> Uh, That's amazing. <laughs> it's funny how common I, I've talked with other '80s kids too, and it's such a common experience that you know their parents kind of found that like, oh, you really want that? Good. That guy over there needs his lawn mowed. You know, go to it. <laughs> On the note of Mario Two, I also remember it being really strange. It was just a different like concept altogether. Uh, not really liking it as a kid, but then I don't know, maybe a dozen years ago. Uh, I still have like my Super Nintendo, um, and so which had like Mario All Stars, which was like the, the pack of the original three, right? And I went back and started playing Mario Two again, and I was like, "This is actually a really fun game <laughs> if you give it a shot." Uh, yeah, it's different, uh, but it is fun. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I I played it and I enjoyed it. I just liked the other ones better. That's yeah. All. I think Mario Three is still my like top three video games of all time, and I don't even play many video games anymore, but. Uh, I'm a sucker for the nostalgia of it. Yeah, I don't have, uh, with the marketer-in-chief project, with fractional CMO clients, a couple of startups that I'm involved in, I wish I had more time for that. Uh, I, I'd really enjoy it. But yeah, it's uh, at some point, you got to grow up. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's taken me a while, but I think I'm there. Yeah, I got back into, I, I actually, my recent one has been, uh, I bought a PS4 a couple months ago to play the new MLB game oh, sure. and and talk about a lesson in um, <laughs> marketing or branding. I have a Nintendo Switch and I got, so the, the game that came out for the Switch was RBI Baseball. Like they, they did an updated, a reboot of the old one on Sega, right. but like modern graphics, everything like that, but not that good of modern graphics. Yeah. The game was so bad that I returned it bought a PS4 and bought the game for PS4, which is called MLB The Show. So RB, I was just like, this is a genius marketing strategy by The Show. The competitor's game is so bad that I went and spent 400 bucks on a new system and then 60 bucks on the game uh, when uh, the previous week I wasn't even planning on spending any money. That's a, it was kind of a lesson on, you know, kind of stay in your lane, you know. The yeah. Nintendo's sports games are not Nintendo's thing. Right, right. They're just not. You know, the EA has got a real corner on that. You know, the FIFA games are great. The MLB games are great. Yeah. The NFL and the Madden games were great back in the day. And it just wasn't like the uh, Nintendo, that was never really the right platform for that. Mm -hmm. You know, Nintendo was like the Mario and Zelda platform. Right. Or you could have a blast on those. There was, there was so much fun. Uh, but... All the sports games were just terrible. Uh, <laughs> you know, they had that uh, punch out, and they, they don't Tyson's call it Mike, out, they right? don't call it Mike Tyson's punch out anymore. I, I don't know <laughs> if there's kind of a trademark got. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that was the real reason, but yeah, yeah it's uh, crazy. <laughs> we could talk about video games all day, but let's Good. talk about presidential election. In the worst segue in podcast history, let's talk about presidential elections. So. Uh, again, the topic is how to swing an election with $46,000. Uh, and what this is really about is how in 2016, um, 
at, at the time, uh, Republican candidate Donald Trump was able to, or his campaign anyway, was able to leverage the power of social media and, and Facebook ad buys to swing a lot of public opinion in his favor, ultimately winning the election, uh, also with the help of some outside influence groups at the same time. Now, I think in order for us to really get like a good jump off point to have this discussion, we need to first really gain alignment on like, what do we mean when we say marketing and how is it different than perhaps the common perception of marketing? Yeah, I think the biggest question I get when people talk about marketing, especially digital marketing, you know, the average person uh, watches Mad Men or they see Super Bowl ads and they think that's what marketing is. And it is that uh, to an extent. There's an element of creativity. There's an element of uh, showing off. Uh, there's an element of big brands and big ideas. We, uh, there's certainly a part of that. But to understand it, I always like to tell people that uh, it's a bit like an iceberg kind of metaphor. What you see up at the top is, is just a tiny fraction of what it really is. When I talk with other business people, other startups about marketing, we talk about value propositions. We talk about logos. We talk about strategy those sort of things. And marketing absolutely is that too. That's the first layer that helps guide what that creative is. But when you think about marketing in the past 10 years, and what most people don't understand is marketing is absolutely surgical. It's one-to-one and it is absolutely omnipresent around you in your digital life. And most people just don't understand the extent to which marketing and uh, all of the technologies you use, if you use Google, if you use Facebook, Twitter, you use an iPhone, you use Google Maps to get yourself somewhere, almost whatever you do, marketing is a part of that, tracking your behaviors, tracking what you say, think, do, and act uh, online. And it's not just on your computer. You take, you're carrying your computer with you now. And so your phone is everywhere you are, looking at everything you're looking at, hearing everything you're saying. So just understanding the level at which we're talking now helps kind of really change people's mind. You know, we're, we're not talking about Don Draper anymore. You know, comparing that level of marketing to what marketing is now, uh, the example, I, the comparison I use in the article is like, that's like comparing a horse and buggy to a Tesla Model 3. Mm-hmm. We're not even in the same weight class anymore. And I think people have to understand that part first to really accept that, wow, you could really swing an election with modern digital marketing techniques, and they're absolutely at being used. Uh, they were in 2016, they absolutely are now. And amongst many interesting things is that, you know, this $46,000 that you've talked about in your article is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the overall campaign budget. I think you said that uh, in the 2016 election combined, the, both candidates spent a record $1.6 billion right. in the 24 months leading up to the election. Um, so $46,000 is obviously like, you know, it's like seven decimal points. It's like seven to the right of the decimal point before you can get the percent. Now, how is it possible then that with such little amount of money, something could be so impactful when you consider that, you know, again, there are 
billions of dollars or at least hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on so many other initiatives? And how, how is it fair to say that, well, this tiny, tiny fraction of a budget actually had so much impact? Yeah, a couple of things to say about that first. The $46,000 is the reported figure uh, that we know about. Was there more? Certainly. Uh, could it have been 10 times more? You know, almost $5 million. Sure. Does that really matter in the grand scheme of things? That's still right. into the seven decimal points away. Now it's five decimal points away. <laughs> it's still a drop in the bucket, okay? Uh, here's the thing. Uh, let's think about if we were to, you know, the best way I would think about that is, let's say you were going to get hit with a 10-pound weight, okay? And you were going to get hit with a 10-pound weight. Let's say that 10-pound weight was over, you know, a, a foot square. You know, so all that force was directed in an area of one square foot. Well, that, that might hurt. You know, you might bloody a nose, but you're probably going to be okay. Well, what if then, instead of all that force being directed over one square foot, let's take a look at one square inch. That probably would be, that'd hurt. Mm. You know, that might knock you out. What if you took that over one square millimeter? And I know we've switched, we've switched from imperial to metric units, but you get the idea, okay? <laughs> yeah. uh, that amount of force over that precise an area is deadly. And I think in an election like this, what digital marketing techniques and what the digital platforms allow marketers to do is take what force would have been diffused over a wide area and absolutely laser focus on just those voters in just those states and just those areas that matter. Uh, for instance, let's say I convinced another 10,000 people in California to vote for Donald Trump versus voting for Hillary Clinton. Uh, Hillary Clinton. Wouldn't matter. Grand scheme of things, all 50-some electoral college votes go for Hillary Clinton uh, unless you can win the whole state. Uh, however, if I can focus those efforts in closer states, and not just at the state level, but at the zip code level, at the household level, if I can really focus in, I can take a very small amount of money and kind of laser focus it exactly where I want it. If I can do that, I don't need a big budget. I just need to be very precise with where I spend my money. Mm. With that, let's get into the mechanics of this. So in your article, you outline a seven-step process for how right. this was accomplished. Step one is setting up advertising accounts. This is where we get into like, okay, what are the platforms we're even going to leverage here? Talk to us about how you figure this out or how they figured this out and, and, and what goes into the setting up of the accounts. Well, first thing I would tell you is if you're in digital marketing at all, this is going to be pretty boring to you. This is your day-to-day. -day. Uh, this is what uh, a digital marketing person does on a day-to-day -day basis. There's no magic Russian hackers in basements somewhere, you know, writing code that kind of fakes out somebody. This is standard stuff. And in fact, if you go to Facebook, and I use Facebook here as the general example uh, to help walk you through the process, but it's the same one on Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, you know, whatever. This is how digital marketing gets done. When you, the first thing you need to do is you need to set up the accounts. And you'll notice that I use the plural on the word accounts. 
a lot of people think, well, I'm going to go in and I'm going to set up an account for my, for my business. And that's what most uh, startups are going to do. That's most, what most companies are going to do. But many political operatives actually will set up multiple accounts. You know, so that, you know, a couple of reasons for that. One is they create the impression that there's more support for something. There are different organizations. There are more people who are supporting a particular candidate or a particular position than there actually are. The old word for this is called astroturfing, you know, mm -hmm. where instead of grassroots support, you'd have astroturf kind of support. Ah. It's really the same idea here, there, where you set up multiple accounts. Also, uh, at a very tactical level, it's a risk reduction strategy. So let's say you have one account where you're going to try some really edgy stuff and other accounts where you want to do some more pedestrian stuff. Uh, you want to make sure that if Facebook or Google or YouTube shuts down a particular account because you cross the line, it doesn't shut down your whole operation. So some of the uh, folks from the, you know, uh, from the outside groups may have as many as a dozen, two dozen, three dozen different paid advertising accounts that all try different strategies, but they're all coordinated together. You just may not perceive them as coordinated together because they all have different names. Yeah. One thing I do want to um, clarify for anyone listening, you mentioned like it's not about like a Russian hacker writing a specific, you know, cheat line of code or anything like that. Uh, unless I'm, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing you, but because uh, I believe you have said there is evidence that there was Russian interference in that election. However, they did not do anything that was not illegal based on how the platforms at least functioned then. Right. Yeah, there was a mix of things. And, you know, the evidence points to a variety of different tactics and techniques, some that certainly violated the terms of service of Facebook and other platforms, uh, where, you know, Facebook took action on some of those. But when you think about the strategy that I just described, that's precisely what a uh, political organization, whether it was Russian or whether it was domestic, that's the same strategy used, where... I want to make sure that if I'm going to try to push up right up against the line, invariably, I'm going to step over it in some cases. Well, if I do, I don't want my entire organization's, you know, kind of ability to influence to be shut down. So I'm going to protect that. Now, every platform has ways to try to prevent that. I can tell you that the, it's like playing whack-a-mole. It is very, very difficult, you know, to prevent someone from setting up more than one account. Uh, They've got lots of ways to do it, but boy, uh, outsmarting them is a constant cat and mouse game uh, to kind of mix metaphors. It's, yeah. uh, it does happen. I also think there's a difference between violating terms of service of an ad platform versus illegal by constitutional law, right? Like there's a big difference between the two. <laughs> yeah, there certainly is. And uh, here's the thing about kind of violating campaign law that's different than violating most other laws. Mm. Uh, a campaign has a date at which something happens, you know, uh, an election, a voting event. People vote, a candidate was elected. Well, let's say that someone then did in fact violate the law and they were prosecuted under international law or under domestic law. Well, what happened then in terms of the candidate? Was the candidate still elected? Do we go back and we reverse the election? Because an outside group violated the law? Uh, no, we don't do that. So what many of these groups have discovered is, okay, 
you know, uh, they're making a calculation uh, based on kind of risk reward on what they would do because after the fact, it's very difficult to back that out later. Yeah. You know, there's no clawback in an election as there is with most other, uh, many other financial crimes. Uh, you could go back and you could, you know, you could sue for damages. There are no damages uh, here. The damage is done once the election happens. Step two is figuring out the interface of these platforms. So right. you've kind of broken this out in terms of like, understanding between like account, campaign, ad. Can you just walk us through the different levels within this? Yeah, I think, uh, again, when you go in and you set up your own advertising account for your own business, um, you want to reach people, you'll have kind of a hierarchical level of just organization. If you just think about it logically, you've got your account up at the top, you've got campaigns that sit right under there, and all platforms are a little different, but they basically uh, think the same way. You know, if you were starting up a business, you might have, a campaign for each of your different product lines or services that you wanted to offer. That way you keep your advertising organized. It's all just an organization system. And then finally, under that, you've got the advertising groups. So you might have multiple different groups of ads for each one of your major themes. So it's just another layer of organization. And then finally, at the bottom, you get down to the advertising themselves, you know, where you've got specific ads, at specific times to specific people. It's all a matter of just keeping it organized. And here's the thing to note, that no matter what platform you're in, they're really easy to use. And that's obvious, okay? Uh, Facebook wants you to advertise. Right. That's how they make money. Like you don't pay to use Facebook, you don't pay to use Twitter. You know, if, you know, if they've gotta make this thing really easy for you to use. Well, for the average business owner or startup, that's awesome for the average political manipulator. That's also awesome for them and not so great for the rest of us uh, who are trying to, you know, sort out the wheat from the chaff on that, but they're very easy to use. And anyone who's used one, once you get the hang of it, it goes quick. At the campaign level, some of the things you mentioned in your article is this is essentially where you're trying to like group. What are your interest topics? Um, and some of the examples you give from the Trump campaign could be things like Hillary Clinton's emails, gun rights and advocacy, immigration policy, anti-Democrat in general, pro-Republican in general, pro-Trump in general. And you also call out that like these don't look and sound like advertisements, and that's intentional. Um, right. They're just a way to organize ad efforts into groups. So can you just talk through the importance of organizing things into different, essentially topical groups? Yeah, I think what's critical about your organization strategy comes back to, if you think about from a kind of a management 101, and this is kind of a business 101, uh, what gets measured gets managed. So when you think about the reason that you spend so much time organizing things appropriately is so that you can measure the results of that, those campaigns and those groups over time. For instance, let's say that you you know, you mentioned all of those same ones and that's six different categories. And you went in and you start to run ads and you start to get results. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But let's say that you determine pretty quickly that Hillary Clinton's emails and immigration policy are the two most important things. And you tend to learn that very fast uh, with the results. Well, 
what would you do? Let's say you had six different categories, you had $60,000. I know it's not quite what we talked about, but it makes the math easier. Okay? <laughs> and uh, I like easy math. So let's say you might start out with $10,000 in each bucket kind of allocated. You determine that those two categories are the most important. What would you do? You'd reallocate your advertising spending to get, you know, to get even more results in those two areas versus the others. So you really want to make sure that you kind of start to understand what areas, what general areas tend to be the most effective for you and which tend not. Now you can do that at the that campaign level, you can do it at the ad group level, and you can do it at the specific advertisement level. So really the measurement and the metrics really help you understand where to prioritize. Mm. From there, you can then segment by audience type, by how you want to position the message. Do you want it to be something that is educational? Do you want to be a direct attack ad? Do you want to be positive? And then even into like geography, is it going to be a, a post, a video, a photo, et cetera? Are they on mobile? Are they on desktop? And obviously within the pl like which platform you're using itself. Um, right. Can you walk us through a, like, uh, a sample you know, perhaps, you know, coming back to that election, like if we use like gun rights and advocacy as an example, like how that would play out to the end user and then like kind of like ladder us back up to well, how to, how did that get in front of the user like that? Yeah, let's do it. So let's say that we took one of those campaigns, that gun rights campaign, that's as good as an example as any. And I bet if you kind of think back to 2016 and the advertising you may have seen, you can probably do some of this yourself and you can kind of create this same hierarchy. So let's say we've got gun rights and advocacy up at the top. And then as an ad group, we wanted to separate by gender. Then I want to separate men and women and I want to see if they respond differently. So I've got them separated at the ad group level, that next layer down. Well, my advertisements might take a number of different forms. I could say, well, guns are going to help keep your family safer and I could have advertising around that. Guns help protect your children. You know, that might be something that women may respond to differently than men. So, you know, that one makes sense there. Uh, those are more positive. I could take some more negative stances. Uh, if they take away your guns, let's do the slippery slope argument. What are they going to take away next? What other freedom will you lose? I could get even more specific than that. I could say Hillary Clinton will take away your guns and prevent you from protecting your family. I could even go a step further. I could grab a quote from Hillary Clinton, usually taken out of context. They all are. Uh, that's nothing new in politics. Right. Uh, out of context quote, discussing gun rights. I run those five different ads and I'd see, well, which ones play best for which types of people, which types of women in what areas, you know, in what states uh, where, you know, does that play best? So you could see how you could pretty easily with that, you know, six campaigns that we talked about, you could run 50, 60, 70, or many, many more uh, individual advertisements that all ladder up to that major campaign, that major campaign level. And think about all the data you get, you know, all the information you got about what message works to what group at what time in what general category, uh, you know a lot uh, in a very short period of time. From there, the next step in the process is figuring out what do you want to accomplish? Now, isn't the answer to that obvious? Isn't, isn't accomplish like, I want them to vote for me. 
right? What is the, what's the trick there? I think there's, uh, you know, the, each platform handles this a little bit differently. And they'll talk to things about brand awareness, local awareness, reach, traffic, engagement, all of those sorts of things. But if you think about this like a marketing person does, there are a lot of things that you could want to accomplish that, you know, you're not, you know, people aren't going to be voting on your platform. They're not going to look at the ad and there's not going to be a call to action at the bottom of the ad that says vote for this candidate now. You know, where if you click that button, that goes onto your ballot and you voted for that person. That's not how it works. So in marketing, we need to do things before that point to influence you to that point. So I may need to make sure that you're aware of me and my message. That's brand awareness. I may need to get you to watch my video. There's a goal around video views. The reason that the platforms do this is based on the general type of thing you want to accomplish, it will pre-select a lot of the mechanics, you know, to help make sure that your advertisement is seen at the right time by the right people in the right context. The platforms, again, like we've talked about before, they want to make this easy for you. They want to make sure that you're successful because if you are not successful, they're not successful. Like you paying them to advertise is the only way they make money in most cases. So they need to help you out. This is just a way that they help you. Now, in the 2016 campaign specifically, well, of all of the goals you could want, well, we, you probably can already guess the goal that uh, they wanted to, you know, that these groups wanted. They want local awareness, local engagement. It's all about local for them. You want to make sure that you're not doing advertising across the entire United States. You want to be in just those areas where they could tip one way or another. And that's really uh, based on the electoral college system. But I can tell you in other countries where it doesn't work quite that way, there are certainly groups, different cities, different locations where you might want to tip over one way or another. Uh, it's not as though this doesn't, you know, this is a unique feature of the United States system. It's just a little bit more mechanical than many others. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we're very specific about where you want to be. Whereas in other countries, you may have to go more at the macro level. But the United States is very state-based. So most of your advertising, most of these campaigns are run at the state level and then at the local level. How important is this idea of local even beyond the state level? And, and how did the Trump campaign effectively leverage this? Yeah, it is important to the, you know, there's an old saying in retail, you've probably heard it, location, location, location. Uh, in politics, it's location, 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 location. Uh, it is no more important than that. It is the linchpin. So when you take a look at, uh, you know, when you take a look at the electoral map and you start to look at where the polls are lining up for a particular candidate in a particular state, you learn pretty quickly how to prioritize where are they close, number one, and two, where are the maximum number of electoral votes at stake? So, for instance, let's say Maine is a very close state, and it was a close state in the 2016 election. It has two electoral votes. Okay? So you can spend a lot of time and a lot of energy turning over those two electoral votes, or you can focus on Michigan which with 16, or Pennsylvania that has 20. So what you're looking at is a combination of the margin, the vote margin, 
Like how many people do you really have to influence? And the number of electoral college votes at stake. People talk a lot about Florida. Florida is a big prize, and I'm doing the air quotes. Yeah. Uh, and if you're Battle watching, State, you can yeah. see that. Yeah. Uh, but in reality, if we, you took a look at the 2016 election, and you said, well, Florida's got 29 electoral votes. If I focused on Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, those combined have 56 electoral votes. And I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket there. Because if I lose Florida, I've lost the whole thing. But if I go after that right mix of states that are close, that have nice chunks of electoral votes, I can really focus in. In 2016, how it turned out uh, that there were about 100,000 people around the country that would have, had they moved the other way, uh, Hillary Clinton would be president. It's really that small. Well, it's interesting, too, because you mentioned the objective was for Trump to win a state by just a single vote. Like, that's all you need, right? You just need to win, right. by, win that state by a single electoral vote. And when you have a limited budget, this is from your article, it's risky to invest everything in trying to tip over just one state. So it's better to diversify your efforts in multiple locations where there is less competition. And that's how you're saying modern marketing thinks about problems and how the Trump campaign thinks about problems. From here, we go into step four of the process, which is who is your audience? And you say that there is one thing that separates professional persuaders from everyone else, and it is how they look at this question. My question, my question to you is, well, you say, who's your audience? I thought, I thought we already defined it up front. You, know, you, you looked at men versus women. You looked at, do they live here? Do they live there? What do, you, what do we mean here by who's your audience? This is a, when, when you talk to a professional persuader about who's your audience, they look at it very different. Most people think, okay, my, you know, my audience is, I've got something and I want, you know, I want to sell it to them. Like I make iPhones, I want to sell people iPhones. That's how most people think about persuasion. Professional persuaders look at what does the audience think? What do they want? What do they do? Who are they? And then how do I align what I have to meet their needs? It's really, it, it sounds really simple. It sounds almost obvious, but I can tell you from personal experience being in the field, it's probably the number one mistake that startups make. Mm -hmm. It's the number one mistake that most large businesses face. They've got a thing and they want to sell it to you. Uh, and what's so effective about the, you'll notice that in this step-by-step -step process, although we've talked about examples of how advertisement gets done, we're not at the point yet where we're talking about the creative strategy. You know, that's, that's further down the list. Actually, when you're thinking about this, what you're doing is you're forcing yourself to think about who the audience is first. Facebook, Twitter, they're helping you do that. They're helping you persuade more effectively by forcing you to consider your audience before you consider your creative approach and before you consider that. Now, of course, people know kind of what they want to have happen. But at this point, we're really taking a look at three key things. We're looking at demographics, psychographics, and behavioral metrics. Simple as that. Demographics, who we are. Psychographics, what you think. Behavioral metrics, what you do. Mm. Okay. So when you think about... Right, let me just go ahead. ask a clarifying question there. 
is it common that what people think is actually different than what they like? Do they act in a way that it conflicts with the way they may they're supposed to think? I, I guess. Yeah. The uh, when you think about those three types of metrics, and there's a reason that we think about all three of them. That you know, demographics. What's important in a in this political context that we've been talking about, the demographics are critical. Okay? I need to know where you are uh, because that's ultimately what I'm trying to do. I, I, I know that I don't have the money to influence every possible person in the United States. I've got a very small amount of money. Mm-hmm. I need to know who the specific people are. That's really critical. So demographic information is critical. Most people then go up to uh, psychographic information, what people think. You know, they'll, they'll think about like, oh, well, what are they like? What do opinion surveys tell me? Uh, if you ask any marketing person uh, whether they believe one word out of an opinion survey, you know, of course they'll tell you uh, up front that, oh, yeah, people, you know, you can tell a lot from an opinion survey. If you get them together and give them a couple beers, they'll tell you they would rather have behavioral data all day long. Well, what is behavioral data? Uh, what do you click on? Uh, what do you search for on Google? Uh, where do you take your phone? Where do you actually go? You could tell people that you go to the gym six days a week. I would rather know where does your phone think you went to the gym six times a week. Many times (laughs) your phone only thinks you went there three times. I would rather have the data that tells me what you actually do versus what you think you do. Now, of course, you know, I want all three of those pieces of data. I want to be able to see and try to manipulate different parts of that. But each one has its place. Each one is part of what many of these platforms will give you. You can see in Facebook how it will give you each, you know, metrics in each one of those different uh, characteristics and absolutely does. Well, and what I think is really important to highlight here is oftentimes we see ads or we hear about ads in a news story write-up and we're like, how could anyone possibly click on that? How could anyone possibly read that and think it's real? And uh, a couple of screen grabs you, you put into your article, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to read these ads verbatim, everyone, and again, remember, this is just documented evidence being pulled from 2016. Uh, it's by no way like consistent with my views or anything like that. Um, but there was three different ads from 2016. One of them showed a group of women wearing the traditional uh, burqa that you see in some parts of Islamic culture. And the ad in like big meme text says, like and share if you want burqa banned in America, stop all invaders. There's another ad with a big X over Hillary Clinton's face and the caption, you know, the the Facebook text caption above that says, Hillary Clinton is co-author of Obama's anti-police and anti-constitutional propaganda. And it's, it leads people to like click on an event called down with Hillary. A third one shows a, like a road sign that says no invaders allowed. And the Facebook caption says every man should stand for our borders join. It's asking people to like a specific page called secured borders. All of these have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people interacting with them. Right. And they are all from coming back to one of your earlier points about multiple accounts. These are not from the same account. They are from different accounts pushing a specific type of message to a specific type of audience. Now, can you speak more on that whole notion of like, 
but how could anyone possibly like click that and think that's real? Here's the thing. I think we all have that weird uncle who sends you those things that he finds on Facebook. Uh, or we've all met people. If we, if we're outside of our bubble at all, you know, we, we know people who, you know, will read these and they'll be influenced by these. A couple of things I would say, uh, one of the things that, uh, I learned kind of marketing 101 is I got the very first day of class and my very first marketing lesson at the University of Wisconsin. The professor got up and said, you are not your audience. Mm. Hard stop. Okay? Just because you feel a certain way or don't feel a certain way, never, ever, ever assume uh, that your audience feels the same way or will do the same thing. Uh, it is dangerous to assume that. In fact, with many startups, uh, you know, not having the, you know, having a little bit of experience in the field is key, but there's such a thing as too much where you start to make assumptions about what your audience will feel. So that part absolutely is important. Uh, the second thing I would say is, as we've talked about to this point, we've got lots of different, you know, filters on who's seeing this and when they're seeing it and in what context they're seeing it. Uh, I'm not, you know, if I were the author of one of these ads, and I was not, but if I were, I certainly would not put this ad in front of somebody who I didn't think was probably on the fence uh, that could be nudged one way or another. How might I know that? Well, I might experiment with different groups. I might experiment, experiment with folks who also are members of the National Rifle Association who have liked that page. Maybe I would send them one of these and see how many people clicked on that. And I might try a number of different things to figure out who might be best persuaded or nudged by an ad like this. But if you look at these and you're either disgusted or that you feel like there's just no way that, you know, that anyone could be, you know, persuaded, know that it's not you and know that when you think that, here's the thing, you are being persuaded by ads that do tend to align with your values that you're just not aware. You feel like, Oh, I agree with that already. You know, you can be easily nudged. I think one of the big lessons that I want people to take out of, you know, learning about this process is how vulnerable we are to persuasion and how easy it is where when you look at this, of course, if this were in my Facebook feed, you know, this is one I'd probably report you know, right. as offensive, but I'm not the intended audience. And, but there might be other ads in there that might be just as manipulative, but align with my values maybe a little bit better. And I might find myself maybe not liking it, but certainly not being offended by a different type of ad. Uh, I think it is very important to look critically at these as you see them, but Honestly, Raj, uh, how many pieces of advertising do you see in an average day? Uh, just the ability to think critically about everything in your, in your Twitter feed is impossible for the average person. Well, and this, this takes us into the next step of the process, which is what's your creative strategy? And you've kind of expanded on that there, which is this whole, like, I can't imagine anyone changing their vote based on these ads, but the reality is people do. And one example I'd like you to highlight, because I, I just thought it was so, I think, telling when I read through it, 
was this, um, the, the ad by a group called army of Jesus, where you have a photo or, you know, it's a graphic of Jesus Christ arm wrestling with Satan. And Satan is saying, if I win, Clinton wins. Jesus is saying, not if I can help it. The Facebook caption says, today Americans are able to elect a president with godly moral principles. Hillary is a Satan and her crimes and lies have proved just how evil she is. And even though Donald Trump isn't a saint by any means, he's at least an honest man and he cares deeply for this country. My vote goes for him. Now, the interesting thing here is the my vote goes for him is intended to be speaking on behalf of Jesus, at least so far as because you can tell because the, the profile photo of the Army of Jesus group is Jesus with an American flag draped over him. And then the end of the graphic says, press like to help Jesus win. Now, there's so much packed into this. I'll just kind of put it in your hands to dissect this. This is, uh, you know, I think the first thing to think about is for most people, and I would say there's a bell curve going on. This is from two standard deviations to two standard deviations at 98% of people or so would, would think this is just utterly ridiculous. You know, it's almost a joke uh, to look at it. But for those folks who can, who are right on that edge, who might, uh, you know, who might be persuaded, there are a lot of triggers in this particular, you know, this particular app. Let's take a look at a few of them and let's break down the creative strategy here. You'll notice first the image is the most captivating. You've got Satan and Jesus arm wrestling. And I'll say for anyone listening right now, honestly, if you haven't yet, go and just like go to the article and look at this while you're listening to this, if not the entire episode, at least this part of our episode. And we'll say it again at the end, but it's, it's marketerinchief.com slash Donald hyphen Trump. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, this one's about, you know, maybe uh, halfway down the page, you'll find it, but you, you can't miss this one. Uh, I promise you that. Uh, so think about it for a second. Think about the, the things that are being done in here. First, you've got this image. It's the most captivating part. You've got Satan is on the left of that. Jesus is on the right. Oh my God, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> okay, that. That's not a mistake. It's not a mistake that, you know, they're using the very kind of Caucasian version of Jesus. Although, mm. you know, kind of historically, you know, Jesus was kind of darker skinned, right. uh, you know, from that area of the Levant. You know, it looked probably more like someone from Greece, Turkey, or modern Judea than, than kind of a Norwegian guy with a beard. Uh, right. so you've got that. But that's, that's not all that common. Just look at the right and the left. That's key. Obviously, the storm clouds and the bright, you know, kind of the bright, you know, that Satan is in the dark. And, mm. and he's, you know, he's uh, kind of an angry looking guy. Uh, you've already mentioned the kind of little you know, kind of Jesus in the corner with the flag draped over him, kind of linking, you know, Jesus yeah, the profile with, photo, right? with yeah. the United States. Right. So we, we certainly want that. We've got a number of things in here going on, you know, that Satan wins if Clinton wins, you know, so aligning Clinton with Satan. You'll notice that they don't specifically, and you pointed this out already, Raj, they didn't specifically link Jesus with Donald Trump. Hey, this part's key. This part is really key. This is a negative strategy. What I want here is I want people to dislike Hillary Clinton more than they like Donald Trump. Okay? And why might they do that? 
It, in marketing, we know that you know negative drives action more than positive does. Mm -hmm. uh, the you know, the psychology is called prospect theory. You can go look that up, but it is really well documented psychology that says if I get you, if I use a negative version of something versus a positive one, people are more afraid of what they might lose than what they might win. So, you know, I want to, you know, I want to make sure that I'm negative towards Hillary Clinton. Obviously, that's the name that appears not only in the text of the ad, you know, the, the caption, but also appears in the headline you know, that people will read. Because if you're scanning your Facebook feed, are you going to read that little paragraph? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Right, right. So they do say in, in the little, the, the mini caption text, it does say, even though Donald Trump isn't a saint by any means, he's at least an honest man. He cares even for his country. My vote goes for him. So there is technically this endorsement by Jesus. It's just such a strange oh, sentence yeah, to say. Kind of, there's a little thing in there and. Uh, even that sentence there where they kind of take a little bit of a dig at Donald Trump, if you notice there, he, he's yeah. not a saint. Uh, there's a, a great uh, study from Harvard University years ago that had two resumes go out to the, you know, kind of an A-B split test. Yeah. And one resume and cover letter, same resume cover letter, the cover letter was completely glowing. And in the other cover letter, there was a, hey, this person has a couple of things to work on. So it was a little negative. It had a little bit of a negative. The study found that the resume and cover letter that had a little bit of negative got 20 to 30% more callbacks than the one that was completely glowing. So it makes it feel a little bit more like, hey, you're acknowledging that Donald Trump's not a saint, but Hillary Clinton is a Satan uh, again, in air quotes, uh, and, and a direct quote from the from the ad. So it's there are a number of different psychological, you know, aspects at play. And like, the the key thing is we we look here at the final version. This isn't the final version. This ad, like all others, goes through multiple iterations, multiple things. This is the one that ended up being the most effective out of probably dozens of versions of different texts and different psychological things that we're playing with. You know, that's the thing that's different than this about a billboard you might see outside the billboard. You can't change, you can't create 50 versions of the billboard and change it every 30 seconds. This one you can uh, until you find just the right combination of words and phrases and images that pushes you over the top and uh, you lock in that one and let it run. The other thing that I think is effective out of this for the audience who would be influenced by this is the call to action. You know, earlier on we talked about like how, you know, what are we trying to get them to do? In this case, the call to action is not vote for Donald Trump. It is press like to help Jesus win. Now, a couple of things I see here. One, pressing like is the lowest barrier action you can ask of someone. And then two, you are asking them, for someone who's gonna be influenced by this, they are probably, it probably holds some pretty deep religious affiliation. And you're almost challenging them to prove to themselves they actually aren't religious, that they, they don't love Jesus. Because the ask is press like to help Jesus win. 
And then when they do that, I'm sure you can expand on this, but then it gets shown to more people who they, who they know, who likely also fall in line with that belief, right? We tend to be connected with people in social networks. And this was true before Facebook, of course, but we tend to be connected with people who share our beliefs. Uh, those are the people we tend to stay friends with, that tend to stay in our social circles. So to like is, uh, again, the easiest thing you can do. Uh, when, when marketers think about that, uh, you know, that kind of stepped up level of engagement, we look at the lowest level is just that you saw it. A like is kind of that next level up. That's like a little tacit endorsement. Okay? The comment is the next one where I'm actually adding my little, you know, adding a little bit Your to thought. it. Right. adding a little thought and share is you are specifically putting that out there. You are taking this and pulling it from the feed and putting it in your own feed. Well, that's a, each of those goes up. Uh, your point is precisely right. That's just a very easy button. Who's not going to click like, you know, who doesn't want to help Jesus? Right. And I would be, I don't know this for sure, but I would be certain that other versions of this were tested with, share this to help Jesus win and comment on this to help Jesus win. Yeah. You know, do maybe didn't perform see, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which one performs better, which, how much action can you get people to take? But you know, in this, it just, again, I'll reiterate that so many of these ads, just when you look at them and they don't fit your worldview, you can point out all of these things and they just look ridiculous. They're just so silly but I would challenge you to look in your own Facebook feed and find other ads that sort of fit into your worldview mm -hmm. and do the same exercise. Start to pull them apart and realize how you are being persuaded. Now, you may end up coming to the conclusion that, well, that aligns with my worldview. I'm happy to be persuaded by that. Just remember that uh, you know, it works the other way. And, you know, it works that being persuaded is not something that happens to other people. It happens to all of us. And awareness is the first step to not, you, you'll never be immune, but it's, you can inoculate yourself. And this is the, you have to do that within your own scope of your own worldview in order for that to be effective. As you write here, it doesn't have to make sense to you. It makes sense to the people targeted with it. That's right. I want to get through step six and seven. I know we're running long here. Can you hang around for a, for a yeah, little bit longer? Yeah, I sure can. Okay, great. So step six is where will people see your ad? And what I want to keep coming back to here is it's like, these questions seem so fundamental and it's like, oh, well, earlier on we said, well, you're going to show it to people in this county, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. But there's, there's more layers to it than that. And in this case, it's not, we're not talking about like Bucks County, Pennsylvania. We're talking about essentially how is it going to show up to them and on, like, on what platform and in what way, right? Right. You'd, most people have been, they've been on Google and they go to a search engine's results page. In the business, we call that a SERP. You know, it's, we love acronyms. Everyone loves acronyms. It's called a SERP. Okay? And you may have S -U -R -P? known S-E-R-P, search yeah. engine results page. You'll see advertising at the top of the Google page and on the side of the Google page. Uh, those are you know, different places where most people are accustomed to seeing ads. 
people also are used to seeing ads or promoted content uh, within their social media feeds. Uh, you may also see advertising on your smartphone as you're driving up to a restaurant, you know, if you've got that function turned on. So there could be lots of ways that you see particular advertising. Here's the thing, here's what's important. Let's talk about a scenario in 2016 in which you knew that Donald Trump was going to one of those areas that was in contest right now. We may want to say, hmm, I know when he's gonna show up there, I'm going to run my ads uh, right, I, I'm gonna wait for maybe a day or two ahead of that, I'm gonna target it right at those people, right then, right at that time to try to get them to go, uh, to go to the rally. And I might want to know like, hey, you're on your phone, we know you're in your car, you're only 2.6 miles away from the rally. You could drive over there right now, you should join that rally. Or after the rally is done, why don't you post your picture about that rally? It's all of those things when you think about how specific point in time you can be. We haven't really talked about yet that where and when and how advertising gets seen, but I think you can start to get a sense for how precise it can be. You know, how, how targeted you really can be where you can follow the candidate schedule around. You can, you know, you know having the ads on, you know, on the nightly news program is almost quaint uh, right now. It's, it, it almost seems a little silly. Uh, that you would do that, especially if you have a limited budget. You know, if you're the campaign, the official campaign, you've got the big bucks where you can put stuff on TV and that's great. If you're an outside group that wants to move an election or move a particular point, you, you don't have the money to do that. But these platforms allow you the ability to get really hyper-targeted. And it's the same story for businesses as well. We, we've talked a lot about politics, but keep in mind that businesses do this too. You know, anyone who wants to sell you anything can use precisely the same sorts of techniques to make sure to put the right ad to the right person at the right time uh, to get maximum results for the minimum investment. That's what all businesses want to do. So it's not like, I don't feel like there's anything profoundly immoral about this. It's just, we need to be aware how the tools are being used so that we can understand when we're being, when it crosses the line from persuasion into manipulation. Mm. The final step here is the payment. It is how are you going to spend your $46,000? Um, again, the easy thing is, well, I'm just going to put it into the ad machine, right? Isn't that just how it works? But there, there's a little bit more sophistication to it than that. Yeah, I think there are two easy concepts that you know, that anyone who's done this kind of has already had some familiar with, familiarity with, but if you haven't, there are two big ideas. Uh, one is pay for performance, and two is the auction. Okay? So let's break each one of those down because they're related. The first one is pay for performance, uh, also known as pay per click, uh, or other kind of similar things like that. Uh, this is an innovation that Google came up with when it began doing its advertising. You know, back in the day, and my dad was in the advertising business. He was one of the mad men uh, of that era. And when I started my career, career in advertising, if you wanted to put an ad out in a billboard or on TV or in the newspaper, you paid. You know, it didn't matter if the ad worked. 
or if the ad got people to come to your store to buy your product, you paid in advance whether or not it worked. Okay? Google flipped that model completely on its head and it's, it's very important to realize how fundamental a shift this is. What Google did is it said, listen, just because someone saw your ad, we're not gonna charge you for that. We are only gonna charge you when someone clicks on your ad and takes you to a place that you want them to go. Once, what happens from there is up to you, uh, but we're going to charge you based on the performance of the ad, not based on simply seeing it. Now, there's a lot of nuance in there, and digital marketing people, please don't send me emails on this. Okay, I get it, I get it. But for the average person, you gotta understand that most of these platforms have or primarily focus on a pay for performance model. Now think about this for a second. If you're Facebook, you're not getting a check, you're not getting money, until someone is successful with their advertising. Why do you think they've done steps one through six to make it easy for you and to help you do this? Because they don't make money unless you're successful. It aligns the incentives and that's the part where you can make an argument that there is something morally justifiable about doing that, that you are aligning the incentive between the advertiser and the advertising platform to make sure that they are, uh, their goals are aligned. That's really critical. But beside that point, know that that's the number one thing they're doing. Well, how do they figure out how to charge you? So how do you know what to pay? That's the second part, and it's called an auction. An auction basically says, uh, listen, you're trying to reach a particular audience, a particular person. You're going to bid an amount you're going to pay for each click. Let's say you're going to pay, you're going to pay I only want to pay $1. Uh, for every click I'm going to get. So with my $46,000, I got 46,000 clicks I can buy. There's a lot of sophistication there, but let's just, for the sake of argument. You know, I may, uh, if everyone else trying to reach that same audience with the same type of ad at the same time in the same way I do, if they're all willing to pay a buck fifty, I'm out of luck because they're going to win the auction and their ad will get seen before my ad will get seen. It's as simple as that. Uh, but the auction is pretty sophisticated in terms of your bidding and it's all real time. So let's say I wanna bid up to $5. And if everyone's been on eBay, you kinda of get how this works. Like I'm gonna put in my bid that says, I'm willing to pay $10 for this you know, Yoda figure that I want. Uh, but you'll notice that in the bidding that, like, hey, if the highest bid was a dollar, it only is a dollar five or a dollar, you know, one penny for you. So you're willing to pay 10, but you're only going to pay just a little bit more than the next highest person who wanted yeah, to bid. Up to so your predefined max, right? That's correct. To your predefined maximum. And this all happens automatically in milliseconds. So, you know, when people think about like this happens in real time, it happens at the advertisement level. You know, so you can specify a bid at the advertisement level, the ad group level, the campaign level. You can really figure out how you want to spend your money so that you know that feedback loop gives you information on, hmm, this ad is, you know, I have to pay a lot more for this ad than I do for this ad over here in this group, yet they are having the same results. I'm going to shift my money over here. And you can do that minute by minute. And there is software out there that will help you manage your uh, manage that on a real-time basis so that you are maximizing 
your return on investment and spending the least possible amount of money to get the, get the result you want. So that is the seven steps, right? Figuring out payment right. is the, or how, what, what kind of payment model you're going to do is, is the final step there. And then your the algorithm kind of auto optimizes your bids accordingly. And it may seem strange, but that's how a lot of people's decisions were influenced and swayed ultimately in favor of Donald Trump. Um, a couple of things I want to point out as we just take all of that in concert as a machine that works together. If you come back to one of the earlier steps, which is around setting up multiple accounts, um, if you think of the person who's likely to be swayed by you know, the kinds of messaging we've talked explained thus far, and then there are multiple accounts with enough ancillary messaging around it, that person doesn't know that one group is behind each of those different accounts or that those groups are working together. What that person thinks is, wow, there's a lot of like, this movement is being galvanized as I'm scrolling. They look at all these different, you know, pages that are promoting Donald Trump and that are saying this and this and this. So it, it, it sort of creates this like false um, social proof right. uh, for the viewer. I think one of the things that's important to recognize, and I hope that uh, I hope that you are as you're, as you listen to this, that you uh, kind of one of two reactions. If you're in digital marketing, uh, you left 30 minutes ago because you're like, yeah, I get all that. <laughs> that's, how, that's, that's our day. We understand that. I don't need to go back into my day right now. Uh, most real people, though, are pretty terrified uh, by that. They realize that, yeah, I might not have been persuaded by the Jesus and Satan ad, but I bet I know people who were, and holy crap, how many ads have I been looking at where I feel that same way? Or I, where am I being persuaded? And it's scary, uh, for sure. It, it certainly can be that way. But I believe that there is, there is a lot of positive that has come from you know, aligning incentives and giving the average person the ability to you know, the average business, uh, especially small businesses and startups, the ability to reach a target audience uh, efficiently with very little amount of money and really make a difference. It really levels the playing field in a lot of ways with larger organizations. But there's a cost to that. And this is one of the costs. And we need to bear that cost as consumers of information. And I think the best way to think about it, if you're gonna have any one takeaway over, holy crap, what can I do to, to protect you know, to protect myself? How, how can I not be persuaded? One of the most important things is just shifting your mindset. Uh, when you're going through your social media feed, when you're online, that everyone is trying to sell you something. It's as simple as that. Every article you're reading, whether it seems like it comes from the New York Times or some news organization, uh, because it's very tricky to see who's journalist and who's not, uh, and even in journalism, there are lots of different ways that that can get played. I think about every time I'm reading something, especially in something that's important, like voting, that everyone's trying to sell me something. And if I just switch that, think about that for a second. When you go into a Walmart or a Target, like, you know that they're trying to sell you stuff. There's a certain filter you put on your, your, your psyche when you walk in there that 
okay, I'm only going to believe that so far. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure. Well, people don't think about that with how they're being convinced. But if you start to think like a marketing person thinks that I'm trying to sell you something, if you think I'm trying to be, I'm the one buying, it puts you in a more powerful frame of mind. It puts you in a frame of mind where you are the person who decides whether you're going to believe that or not, or whether that's the right thing or not. That consumer mindset, I think, is a key way uh, to help inoculate yourself and help make sure that, yeah, you're still going to be persuaded, but better to know you're being persuaded than not know. Uh, that's my take. There's a new documentary on Netflix called The Social Media Dilemma. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but one of the things that they mention there is, and I think this speaks to your point, anytime a platform is free to use, you, the person using it, are the product. That's right. Um, so I think that's, the, I think that's enough of a cautionary tale or just something to be mindful of. You're the product and people are trying to move you around. <laughs> Uh, to do this or whatever. So when you understand that, it's like anytime you log into your Facebook, you just have to have that, as you said, that filter up. And I, and I think it's different. Like, you know, when you walk into a car dealership, you have your guard up because there's an, like the setting has changed. Like the environment has changed from when you're outside that car dealership to when you're inside that car dealership where you know there are people here trying to sell me something. Right. And... I think when we, anytime we log into our Facebook, our Instagram, search something on Google, we have to treat it like we're going into that car dealership to say, there are people here trying to sell me something right now. And I think most of us, and I know I'm like the worst with like, just those, the, the Instagram algorithm knows me so well where it's like, oh, he's going to, he's going to want to click on this thing. And I, I bought so much random crap through Instagram before because of that. Um, but we have to treat it with that, with that lens, right? I think the thing to add to that, I think it's a great metaphor that imagine walking into the car dealership and the cars are the ideas that people want you to believe. And the salespeople are the sponsored content. They're the advertisers. What we often don't realize is the other people walking around the dealership and the people waiting for service and the little kids running around the thing, they're also trying to sell you. And that's the thing that tends to trip us up is we feel that, oh, if we just look at the little thing that says advertisement, that that will take care of it. But it doesn't. There are lots of groups that appear as though they are, you know, just the average people or they're you or they're me, but they're not. And even if they are, well, we're trying to, through our like and sharing and commenting, we are attempting to influence other people to think the way we think. That's just how, how we are as humans. I think the filter needs to step up a notch where everyone in that car dealership, whether they're a salesperson or the service people or other customers or other kids or whatever, everyone's trying to sell you something. And if you thought, you know, if you, if you looked at it that way, you know, I think that's, more like what the social networks are today and what these advertising platforms are. There is no safe space. There's no safe like, oh, if I just read journalism, that, you know, that, that'll be enough. It's not. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone is trying to sell you something. 
it may sound a little like, oh man, that's like the last, that might be the most depressing thing I've heard today. But I will promise you that if you go into your, you know, you read articles, you read comments, you look at your social media feed, you're on your, you know, you're on your computer, you're on your phone. And if you think that way, uh, you'd be surprised how much less you are persuaded. Do you think if Donald Trump ran in 2008? Do you think he would have been successful? Because in 2008, Facebook advertising didn't exist yet. Twitter was in its nascent stages, but there was no ad platform on it yet, right? Google was a much more primitive. It's a hard, yeah, hard question to answer. I think that, uh, you know, we had micro-targeting back then. We, we would do it through uh, mail. We'd do it through really targeting, narrow-casting broadcast, uh, a lot of get-out-the-vote, a lot of ground game type efforts. It was a lot more work. The thing that I think that uh, uh, I think the answer to your question is no, I don't think so. I don't think he would have won. And the reason that I think he was successful is that the feedback loop is so much faster Mm -hmm. that if something is working or something isn't working, when you look at what Donald Trump is tweeting, they're all, they're all active experiments. He's going to tweet some weird thing. He's going to see how people react to it. And then his, you know, people who are aligned with him can look at that. He's just message testing. And it's, you know, from a marketer's point of view, it's easy to see what he's doing. Uh, Whereas in 2008, he wouldn't have had that platform to do that. He would have needed to get on TV. And you just don't have that feedback loop where you can be. And you have to be naturally more refined if you're showing up on TV. Right. You can't just you can't just you can't just appear on TV for two seconds say liberate Michigan and then say signing off you know like, very, like <laughs> so the platform has allowed that's that's the whole thing about this that that feedback loop is critical because in modern marketing that's how we learn we test we see the results we learn we adjust we try again and it used to be that that would take days or weeks now it takes seconds uh, so. You know, when you think about, well, how many iterations, how long would it take that Jesus Satan ad to become from a concept to the point where it was refined to maximum effect? Right. Maybe a day. Yeah. And also at best, you know, if it was 2008, again, because Facebook's ad platform hadn't been launched yet. Twitter's ad platform hadn't been launched yet. Where would that Jesus Satan ad have even gone? It probably would have had to have been a commercial or a billboard, maybe a YouTube video. (laughs) Yeah, a mailer. Yeah. You get all kinds of weird. uh, It's funny, you know, when I look at the modern political campaigns and I see things coming in the mail, it just, it it blows me away on just how quaint and antiquated that really is Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of where, what are you trying to influence? I realize that there's a time and a place for that, but... Uh, that's not, that's that tip of the iceberg. That's, you're not really seeing what's going on if you kind of look in your mailbox uh, for it. Where can our listeners learn more about you, Jason, and, and learn more about the Marketer-in-Chief project and anything else you're working on? That's uh, easy on Marketer-in-Chief. Just go to marketerinchief.com. Uh, there's one president published every week until the election. So we're, uh, we're, in, the, we're in the final stages uh, right now. So you've got plenty to read on 43 other presidents, including uh, Mr. Trump. 
you know, on number, you know, it's, you know, uh, you know, he's the, he's the one at the end of the sequence there. So you can, you can find him pretty easily, but there's lots of other great uh, content there and a lot of different marketing angles. Uh, you can read about me in there. There's a, about the author uh, in there, but I would encourage people to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find uh, Jason Boyevich. Just search for me. Uh, the great thing about having a name like Jason Boyevich is that uh, you're not going to find a whole lot of others. So find me on there. Uh, I tend to be pretty open. Just give me a, give me a quick note that you heard me on this podcast and I'll make sure to connect with you and we can have a discussion from there. I will put all these, uh, all, all of his information in the show notes. And remember today's specific topic, the article, the link for that, which will be in the show notes as well, but it's, it's, marketerinchief.com, but specifically marketerinchief.com slash Donald hyphen Trump. Uh, as he mentioned, there are, he's doing one for every president, not all, not all about the election every time, but different things about their presidency. I've enjoyed reading through them. Uh, I, I only learned through his articles that when Aaron Burr was vice president to Thomas Jefferson, he actually tried to uh, commandeer a part of the Louisiana Purchase to start his own country. So if you think politics is crazy now, it's, I think it's always been crazy. <laughs> that's, that's really the biggest thing I've learned over the course of the last year doing this is that if we think now oh, politics is just such a mess, it's never been this weird. Oh, I promise you, it's been weirder, <laughs> it's been weirder than that. Acting, serving vice president, sitting vice president, trying to start his own country separate from the U.S. Um, Jason, um, I'm not going to ask you one or two things to wrap up or take away as I usually do, because I, I think this whole, there's just, there's so much that was packed into this to say, Hey, just take this one or two things. But I think we would both leave people with the sort of precaution of understand, take a little bit more um, uh, hesitation almost when you consume information to really think about what's the angle behind that information. And am I being, potentially duped here. Uh, but what I, but I will ask you is the question I ask everyone to close out this show, which is fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. That's a, that's a great question. I know you, you told me what that question was going to be. <laughs> and I have trouble coming up with, you know, with one answer to that, but I will, I'll tell you the thing that first came to mind. Uh, entrepreneurship is joy. The, the creative exercise. Now, I, I come from a long family of, you know, uh, passionate, creative, inventive people. And the, the process of it doesn't matter. Obviously, I'd like to win more than I'd like to lose, uh, of course. But just the creative process is a joy to me. The entrepreneurial process is a joy. And that's the thing that I, I think if you have that joy, You'll be you'll be successful as an entrepreneur whether you win or lose. So that's that's my answer. Entrepreneurship is joy. On that high note, thank you, Jason, for joining today. Thank you for going well over time, but it was a dense topic. I'm glad we could unpack uh, not not even all of it to be honest, but a lot of it. Um, again, everybody, please go check out his article for the sort of the reading complement to this to this episode. You can find it in the show notes. Thank you, Jason, again, for uh, being here today, for lending your expertise, and for uh, closing out uh, our season finale here on the show. And everybody, remember 
to go out and vote on November 3rd. We will see you next season for season 15 of the show, if you can believe it. We'll take about a one-month break before we come back with that. Once again, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today and wrapping up season 14 on Startup Hype Man Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.